It's December 6th, 2021, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. First one we got here, the White House taps former Air Force official to run Pentagon acquisition from Defense News, and that's William LaPlante, of course, who was the president and CEO of Draper Labs, and he is now nominated for Undersecretary and Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Sustainment, ANS. And of course, before that, he had been, you know, the acquisition executive at the Air Force, was at MITRE, actually, where you work there, Matt, uh, um, a little bit after that, before Draper Labs. And the article, you know, wasn't really too much here about everything going on, but he they did note that, you know, once LaPlante gets on the job, which might be a couple months, right? Like, they put the nomination in, but not expecting too much to happen until... January, February timeframe. Um, and by that time, the department's 23 budget will be done. So he gets to play in the very last budget of the Biden administration, right? <laughs> like for fiscal 2024, which is interesting. But any thoughts on, on LaPlante getting the, the tap there? Well, I'll just say I'm, I'm glad that we actually have a nominee uh, to go a whole almost a whole year without a nominee. It was pretty crazy. So he's a... Uh, you know, he's an experienced guy. Uh, he's more of an engineer than an acquisition, uh, you know, strategy person. So I think he'll, you know, probably lean on some other people for uh, for some of that acquisition, you know, uh, specific stuff. But he brings he brings similar, I think, to Ellen Lord in terms of, you know, a lot of experience across different technology domains. At MITRE, he was a he was a pretty high executive and had involvement in a lot of a lot of stuff there. Um, I, I do think he doesn't like me though because. I literally came to the Pentagon when he was still SAE and he left like a year later and then I came to MITRE and he left a year later. So I think he's running away from me, but um, you ain't that important, bro. But yeah, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I can't, it can't be that, but uh, it's suspicious. No, but he, he's a good guy and he'll do a great job. Um, he's, he's, he knows the system and he has, he, the, the important thing I think is too, he has good relationships with, with a lot of the key leaders in the, in the Pentagon. So, so that'll serve him well. Yeah, one of the the things I often associate with him is the own the technical baseline report. So, you know, I'm I'm wondering whether he's going to kind of carry that thought stream and mantle um, in his new job and like strengthen the in-house technical talent of the department and whatever own the technical baseline means in terms of IP and and other things. Um, I wonder if that's going to take off a little bit or whether that was kind of a 2015 thing and he's on to different things, different priorities. I mean, it might not dominate, but I think, I think he still probably has that belief and he felt fairly strongly. And I think rightly so, because he saw a lot of acquisition programs come up and he could see that the program office was not able to effectively counter the contractor or not, not effectively able to oversee uh, that effort. So I think, you know, I think he probably still has that appreciation, you know, so we'll see, we'll see how much of a priority he makes that, but. Yeah, so the next one we got here, Mike Griffin critical of U.S. response to China's advances in hypersonic weapons from Space News. They launch a missile costing maybe a few million dollars or even tens of millions of dollars, and two or three of those can take out an aircraft carrier, he said. Uh, when he left the DOD, uh, military services were on track to produce two hypersonic rounds per month, and he's saying that they need to up that factor by at least 10. Uh, so the ch- is what he says, the Chinese are not going to be scared of a few dozen rounds a year. They need to be facing hundreds of new rounds per year. Uh, the Pentagon's budget for 22 included $3.8 billion for hypersonics weapons research, and that's a bit up from $3.2 billion last year. 
so here's Mike Griffin kind of coming back. He was the old R&E, and now Heidi Shu is the new R&E. And actually, at the Reagan National Defense Forum, she said something along the lines of, I'm about to brief the SecDef on um, counter-hypersonic uh, weapons or strategies that will be asymmetric in terms of costs. So it's pretty interesting that she just kind of threw that out there and was like, well, I can't talk about it. But, you know, um, I guess I wonder if she's kind of signaling um, a different priority set. You know, Ken or uh, Kendall, uh, sec- Secretary of the Air Force, was kind of questioning U.S. kind of needs for having hypersonic weapons and those requirements, even though he sees the definite need for counter hypersonic weapons. So I wonder what the priority is there, but I'm sure... That's not going to deter a lot of the development going on. Yeah, no, actually, funny. I picked up on that too. I was like, I was like, hmm, asymmetric means of countering hypersonics. So that'd be an interesting brief to get. Um, but uh, probably won't get any details on that for anytime well, soon. Well, let's. You want to speculate but, what those are, right? Like, I mean, both directed energy yep. or you know, remember we talked know. about yeah. Navy Odin, the optical dazzling. Um, yeah. There's also we're going to talk a little bit later about microwaves of course there's the space-based sensor stuff going on you know mixes of radars and interceptors like you know aegis and sm6 um cyber is one rapid maneuvering of forces another i guess the i wonder how hard the targeting problem is for hypersonics right so i wonder extremely right (laughs) and and then yeah and then the last one i got here is ai enabled guns right remember where they took a howitzer and they shot down a cruise missile like okay could you theoretically do that for a hypersonic weapon maybe yeah, yeah, that's yeah. It's list. it's similar. I mean, <laughs> that's a good that's a good list, Eric. I like that. Yeah, I mean, that could definitely be something sort of like yeah, like the ages. Um, you know, you could have something to like an active measure. You know, uh, kind of some of the tanks use this, or Israel actually, I think, developed this thing where like as the projectile gets close, it like fires an equal like equally fast projectile at it once it's like in fairly close range and so it kind of steals a lot of energy away from it so yeah probably some creative things i could come up with but you know none of them are going to be like super easy to field and and you know they're they're not going to be like um an effective countermeasure probably for some time they'll probably still have to go through development and a bunch of testing um i mean i was looking back at like hacksaw i i do remember that being the plan you know was to do two a month but as you know my recollection of, of that whole thing was that those were pretty, you know, like hand-built, you know, missiles practically. They did not have like a, there wasn't like a big line for it. So maybe some of that has changed and they've, you know, Lockheed's, Lockheed and Boeing and North have put more more energy into, uh, you know, actually having a hypersonic production line. But, you know, they had like a 60-month EMD schedule. You know, they had a lot to go through still for a full-rate production. So I'm not sure... To Mike Griffin's point, I'm not sure how fast they could accelerate it. I mean, I feel like they've already accelerated a lot. And given the fact we don't have a lot of wind tunnels and things like that for testing, you know, how fast can they go? You know, so it's an open question. But yeah, I saw recent, I guess it was back in July, Purdue got like um, a $6 billion wind tunnel or something like that. Or they invested $6 billion overall. And Northrop Grumman actually gave them a wind tunnel. (laughs) <laughs> and so i guess a lot's going on over there but um yeah that seems to be one of the yeah go ahead oh i said yeah no absolutely my, my a buddy of mine wrote uh, a paper on the on the hypersonic infrastructure and how we were we were way 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 behind where china's at china has 
extensive infrastructure for hypersonics and lots of available wind tunnels. So we're way behind the curve. Yeah. And I think that has something to do with the acquisition system, right? That we just assume that a lot of that infrastructure kind of solves itself with the weapons program um, that we devise from scratch, right? And uh, we reported recently the Mach 30 wind tunnel from, <laughs> from China is starting to come online. Um, whether or not it's Mach 30 or not, that's, you know, it kind of shows their devotion uh, to, you know, enabling inputs rather than just like funding outputs and then hoping everything works out. Yeah, you can, and if you, you can use, it as a, use it as a particle accelerator in the in the off time too. Yeah, it's, no, it's <laughs> it, it does show you that <laughs> it does show you that they 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 saw this like you know years back. Like I remember being in the Pentagon when people came back from a conference where China basically laid out all the, all the progress they had made in hypersonics and everybody was blown away, you know, aghast. And so, you know, they've clearly had their eye on this ball for a while and the U S we, we just didn't do it as a priority. So we're playing catch up. All right. Another spot of potentially playing catch up Pentagon weighing reorganization of AI and data offices from breaking defense under the proposed plan, three offices in question, the defense digital service, the joint artificial intelligence center, and the chief data officer would remain largely independent, but would report up to a new individual tentatively named the chief data and AI officer. Uh, so here we go with the proliferation of chief, chief fill in the blank officer, right? We almost, it would be kind of weird, right? To have a chief data officer then reporting to a chief data and AI officer, which reports to, I guess, uh, the deputy is the chief management officer, right? I, maybe we still have the chief man, management officer, but either way, <laughs> it's just kind of a weird nested issue there. Uh, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I don't, I don't completely get it. I mean, I, I always understand the impulse to, to say, okay, we have some disparate kind of entities here. Uh, you, you know, they, maybe it makes sense to combine them in some ways for efficiencies, but two of these organizations, the Jake and the chief data officer are under the CIO. So you already have a deputy CEO and a CIO who report to no, the, the, the Jake um, reports to the deputy sec def is what it, it does. It does. But technically they're still under CIO. Yeah. Even though they do DISA, report directly. Like they're funded through DISA or something like that. But they, but they're, they, they could easily, if you wanted to put them under one person, you could easily say, okay, we were, had you report directly kind of like SCO or something, but now we want you to, you know, we're going to tuck you under CIO with the chief data officer and that in the in the CIO will be the representative or you know one of the CIO offices. So to establish like another layer because it will be another layer between the CIO. It's like now you have the CIO and you have you know the chief data officer and now you're going to have like another chief data NI officer. So it's going to be it's going to be kind of a lot, you know? Like it's it seems a, I'm not entirely sure I'm tracking on what what efficiencies this will achieve. Um, DDS you know, they've been a little bit outside of the, you know, they, they really had a major role initially. It's, I haven't seen a lot of, uh, you know, visible projects that they've been involved with. So, so I'm not yeah, sure. The white hack hacking sure about stuff them. is kind of seen, like hack the Pentagon seems to be one of their big things, but yeah, but otherwise, yeah, yeah I'm not really sure how that, that plays in there. And yeah, one of the com comments in that was it's not clear to me that adding an extra manager on top of three organizations with dissimilar missions is the way to achieve what, what they want to achieve. There's another article here in Defense One that was saying two cheers for this. And they were basically arguing that 
I don't know. I guess the, just DoD's data and AI kind of needs to just be having that really tight linkage. I, it seems like they want this kind of like master plan of like, you know, perfect pipelines of data, you know, to these AI teams that are developing algorithms. And they also mentioned here that the Jake lacks the authority to compel the military services and other institutions to collaborate. So it really seems like in classic DoD moving, you know, this kind of create a new position is to kind of is is almost like a method for centralized controls like there's all this stuff going on no one can can force anyone's hand and so we need someone to force the hand even though you think that someone would have that right now but well this is funny because the cio are you know different offices in the cio that are involved with DevSecOps have kind of commented similarly they've they've said you know uh, why don't we just mandate DevSecOps for all programs. And unfortunately, they don't really have that authority. And so, you know, maybe build a plan when he comes in, you know, maybe he'll take a heavier hand in some of that uh, and actually say, yeah, this is a, an acquisition-wide policy. You have to do this. But, um, you know, it is true. I mean, I think I think to the to the folks that support us, I mean, I think there is a, a point to be made about uh, even the Jake has a major focus on data. They have a program called DRAID, which is like data readiness uh, for AI development. So they're, they're very focused on like data collection, cleansing and standardization and all that stuff. So they've already recognized the importance of it, but I think there's just so much work to be done in this space that it's okay for them to be independent. They're, uh, they're moving in the same direction. Um, so I guess we'll see, we'll see how this new role is and if it creates some efficiencies that we don't even know about, but it, but it won't solve. The one thing it won't solve is this person won't have any particular mandate to be able to tell the services what to do. I mean, it's going to have to come from the DevSec Def if, if that happens. Probably rightly so in terms of organizational design, right? You don't want every, like every functional telling, you know, every program manager has like a million bosses at that point. Um, but it, it also kind of runs back into the Nick Shalon problem where, okay, he's chief software officer. What did that mean? He, he wasn't given any billets, any, any funding. And all he had was the ability to influence you know, some decision makers towards going somewhere and that wasn't really cutting it. And so potentially that's kind of in the future for this CDAO, C C D A O. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Um, all right, next one we got. The Air Force's most advanced jets may be vulnerable because of their own weapons, Business Insider. And you were kind of pointing me to this after our conversation last week that, you know, this is basically arguing that the Air Force's air-to-air missile arsenal has fallen behind in many respects. Um, and there's a, one of the major concerns is the limited range in the outdated uh, weapons might actually, you know, force, you know, advanced fighters in our arsenal to have to close in further. And then that reduces um, their survivability. A couple things here. One, like, let's just look at the long-range missile developments kind of going on. There's the PL-15 from China which is a long air to air long range air to air missile 93 to 124 miles a little bit longer than the AMRAAM um, from the Department of Defense of course and cr- crucially here's what they say the missile can make course corrections without pilot turning on his radar and giving away his position and uh, China is also developing a newer PLXX which can go 186 to up to 250 miles and then Lockheed Martin is working on the AIM-260, the Advanced Tactical Missile, which is the Air Force's highest priority air-to-air weapon. And we don't really know exactly what that, that's all about, but it might be about 200 to 250 miles in range. So 
Um, any anything more to add on on the uh, the air to air missile wars? No, I mean I think yeah I don't think it's like completely wrong. I mean the for one there's always classified stuff that you know goes on in any of these things. So there's not not everything's always public, but you know I mean the AIM-120D is still an incredibly you know effective missile. I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's at the point where you you know you couldn't complete missions you couldn't knock some of these aircraft out of the you know out of the sky you might just have a lower probability um but this the fact that the aim 260 is under you know under development kind of makes sense that you know they're gonna probably bring in a lot more capabilities uh to to kind of improve that probability um same with like the you know upgrades to the m9 uh block three that's that's been done so um so I i don't think we're i don't think we're too too far behind uh you know, definitely though there there wasn't as much of a focus on this, and so so we are playing like with uh, you know hypersonics, we're playing a little bit of a catch up, and so we probably should have already had the AIM two sixty fielded, and one of the things one of the lessons we'll say, you know, in the inventory that we have now, SDV two is our latest weapon that that was uh, well, I guess JASM ER was as a little bit after that, but SDV two had a really rough testing environment uh, testing time because they really were pushing the boundaries of some of the capabilities. And so if the AIM-260 is, as you could imagine, if it's developed in, in strict secrecy, probably has some really cutting-edge stuff, it could be a fairly prolonged testing environment uh, to make sure that it can actually do all the capabilities that it's being designed for. And so it could be some time before we actually see that fielded. So AIM-120D might, uh, might be where you put a lot of your, uh, your faith in. Yeah, it's just kind of unfortunate because I, I know like these missiles are really complex. Um, and some of them have been around forever, right? The the Sparrow AM7 is like started like maybe even in the 40s, but early 50s. Uh, same with the the AIM-9. But like you would think that you could get a little bit more diversity, have like you know a suite of different ranges and stuff like that, or different capability sets um, within these. Also, one thing I was thinking about is it seems like computer like when is computer vision going to be on these missiles, right? <laughs> like it seems like you might have a couple of different you know, types of missiles that could, you know, you would have to spoof or, you know, have countermeasures to multiple different things. So um, it seems like there could be more of a diversity play there um, and like kind of incremental, you know, lower cost type missiles. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think you just have to. I mean, I think with like we will talk about it. I don't know if you're going to get to that article, but the the drones, if we get to a point where they're not all manned aircraft out there because the one thing is it's still a real constraint that even f-15s you know you can only carry so many missiles on the wings you know and one underneath i mean it's like you know uh at some point you can't take the airplane the airplane can't take off if you're loading it down with weapons so the idea of like the b-52 serving as like having these large weapon racks that were developed to basically just like drop missiles out of there like crazy uh or you know mainly cruise missiles but you know you could use it for air to air um you, you know, that, that kind of makes a lot more sense because uh, if you want to, if you need to put like a lot of small things on the target in order to achieve the same effect, you're just going to have to have quantity. So that's, that's one thing is like, you're probably not going to get quantity on the F-35 because it doesn't have that much weapon space. You're not going to get it on the 16, but yeah, maybe there are other ways with like drones and with, uh, you know, B-52s maybe out there, kind of an arsenal plane concept where you could achieve that effect. So, yeah, I agree with you, though. Yeah, throw, throw why, 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 why throw one, you know, $2 million missile if you could throw 
40, you know, 1,000, you know, little tiny rockets at it and achieve the same effect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. that and just like having like a, a larger mix of different ranges and different, you know, types of detect and track and, you know, methodologies for getting after them is kind of where I was going. But definitely the proliferation makes <laughs> something we're always going for, right? Uh, yeah. Well, actually, you know, staying, staying with that, DARPA's aerial turducken, the long shot, still cooking towards a 2022 milestone. And I'm not really sure why they keep ta- calling it a turducken. I wasn't really sure what that was. It's apparently where you have a chicken stuffed in a duck stuffed in a turkey, put them all together. So the idea here of the long shot that DARPA is coming out with is an air-launched unmanned vehicle, which would then employ other air-to-air weapons. So you'd have like an aircraft, like a C-130, that would you know, have this long shot it would deploy, which is a mothership which would have its own air-to-air missiles. And so DARPA here has been spending $24 million in 21 and $36 million the next year. So DARPA consistently coming out with interesting options. Yeah, this one just makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I really do like this, this effort because if you think about, you know, some of the, I think it was at the Reagan Institute uh, that we talked about um, before the call here, and I think they were talking about how, like, you know, you're going to have to get used to having casualties if you send in a lot of manned aircraft really close to, you know, a, a high threat environment like the you know coast of coast of China. If you're doing especially if you're doing like a penetration mission, um, you, you know, so so having this type of UAV that is designed to kind of go as close as possible, you know, get the, the one thing that I don't completely understand is you're going to have to be able to confirm kind of the target vector. And I don't know how that would be done if that's like a pre-programmed thing where it goes and it confirms coordinates and then, you know, it sends those coordinates to the missile and then it goes and takes it out. But, you know, getting a lot closer without the, the threat of being shot down, but you being able to use it for, you know, for, for either taking out, uh, you know, ground targets, you know, maybe IADs or, or taking out some of these, you know, uh, some of these other air threats that, uh, that might be, you know, it might be affected against. So yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. It'll be interesting to see how, how this is employed and how, like what targets it's effective against and what targets it's not like fast enough or stealthy enough and just get shot down. So, I mean, some of the, some of the really high end targets, I imagine there'd be enough protection around it that, you know, you might not be able to get too close before you, you know, catch a missile. Well, I guess that's the point of having the turducken, right? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it, it would appear to me that you would kind of need to go after both, right? You probably want some autonomous targeting, but realistic, like you got to work on that. But like realistically, I assume you'd be daisy chaining some kind of communication or using the RQ-180, right? <laughs> Something, what, whatever they're using out there to, to kind of get the, get the comms in a kind of denied environment. Um, you know, they're probably going to be able to leverage that because those types of developments are already going on. So not necessarily sure you need to stuff that into the Traducan, um, the long shot here. So I think the Traducan, I think what they say that the three layers is you have the mothership yeah. is like the, the it's, it's okay, 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 okay. Like, <laughs> I just never it, heard of Traducan before. It's just like, yeah, the chicken stuffed in the duck stuffed in the turkey. So you have like the air to air, you have the weapons stuffed in the, I guess the long shot, which is stuffed into a C-130J or something like that, right? 
Yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't. Whoever eats a turducken, that's a different story. But it sounds yeah, delicious. It, it, I looked it up. I was like, I was looking at pictures of it, and I was like, that's a good looking set of birds there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next one we got: defending against drones is becoming a business. From Axios, um, D Drone. Apparently, this is a company. Um, they're finding that two, there's a 217% increase in unauthorized drone access to nine selected U.S. facilities between 2019 and 2020. And the number has only increased since then. So they're basically arguing that we need a whole bunch of uh, counter UAV, counter drone type technologies. And they're kind of worried that this real change won't come, kind of come until there's a drone equivalent of 9-11, uh, which is interesting. But... Um, yeah, so there's that. I remember, man, it must have been the last couple of years I was at the Pentagon. They put up those uh, no drone uh, signs. Did Have you seen those? I thought it was pretty funny. It was like, man, they, they got specific, oh, yeah. like, no, they, the Pentagon probably had a long, you know, like year-long procurement request to go get, like, a custom-made sign that was just, like, no drone, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember I remember in 2019 or 18, maybe it started in 18. It was like counter UAS like blew up because all of a sudden people started to see the threat of these things like, wow, they're getting more capable. They can go fly higher. They can carry more weight like the technology just kind of blew up. And so counter UAS was like a huge urgent need and everybody was running after it. And so, yeah, I think finally, you know, there I think enough enough uh, companies got in the game and so you have you know uh, what's that one we talked about last time they actually have a counter uas as a service yeah you know so so yeah you have you have some options out there now which is good uh yeah so sticking on that popular science lods afrl's weapon among best of what's new from the dayton daily news and of course that's that best of what's new they're referring to the tactical high-powered operational responder otherwise known as thor which employs the uh, microwave, high-powered microwaves, to basically fry the electronics of an entire swarm. And we kind of talked about this before. They didn't really go into too much depth, but I believe that's the Perius uh, microwave system that's been getting a lot of uh, attention recently. So they're saying here, it is compact enough to fit into a shipping container or a C-130 cargo plane, um, and it can be set up in a few hours, and it doesn't hurt people or wildlife. So... I guess it's not like that Havana syndrome, uh, you know, microwave system. But here we go. Um, counter UAS getting big. And we'll see if uh, directed energy types like the microwave can start kind of like surpassing um, or, you know, the kinetic effects that seem to be dominating for the most part. Yeah, I was kind of uh, interested in the the power requirement. Um, didn't really talk about that, but it'd be interesting to know more about you know, what does it need to look into? Is it, you know, is it, is it anything, you know, super special? Do you need special generators, you know, to kind of power, like we've talked about with some other systems. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like there's a lot of solutions out there now, though. I don't know why popular science got as, you know, keen on this one. Cause I thought, I thought some of the other microwave ones and, uh, you know, the, the net capture, I mean, there seems like there's like a lot of like, you know, a lot of different ways that you can kind of get these drones. Even just like forgot you know, about the net capture um, one that was <laughs> taken. Yeah, RF. I mean, just some like strong RF where you just like disconnect the communication and it returns to its owner or whatever. Yeah, like yeah, it seems like that one was like pretty short range from my so. memory. Um, 
Uh, probably, yeah. There's going to be, that's the thing, there's going to be all sorts of trade-offs between these different ones, and you can't, I remember, like, yeah, they had over 30 of them that they were working on throughout the department before they kind of collapsed that into the the joint UAS, counter-UAS um, office that I believe the Army's now heading, so, you know, it's always good to actually have that kind of random diversity at the beginning, um, but you got to, you got to neck it down to what works at some point. Yeah, what makes sense for the operational concept. Yeah, like this one fitting in a C-130 actually is a little bit bigger than I would have thought uh, if it takes up a whole C-130. But yeah, you need something that's transportable, something that's resilient, uh, something that can plug into, you know, local power if you need to. You don't need special stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of considerations there that have to work. So next one we got, the steps we must take to strengthen America's national security innovation base uh, this one's from uh, Ken Calvert, which actually had a bunch of, you know, interesting parts in it. Um, and I'll just give you some of the quotes here. There are too many layers in the decision-making process and too many individuals that can slow or halt entire programs. Saying no or worse, studying the program to death in fear of mistakes or failures happens too all too often. Many times in direct opposition to leadership's clear signal to move forward. Compounding this program managers rotate in and out of programs at the pace defined by a person's career track independent of program milestones or accomplishments. More often, um, so... One of the points he's also trying to make here is that labs should not be doing uh, kind of like invention of new things, but more like integration of existing tech into warfighting systems. So anyway, that was a couple of interesting things from Ken Calvert. Uh, maybe I'd be interested to see. He's he's just the ranking member there, I think, on, on the hack. But um, be interesting to see whether he can kind of follow through with his desires right um those are those were big words in terms of making you know delegating decisions but uh congress sometimes doesn't let that happen yeah i mean i i would say to, and to some extent some of those layers are are there because of congressional direction uh you know the reason why you have to have an independent call system at you know uh dot &E, not saying these are bad things but it, you know some of those layers are independent reviews, uh, you know, independent technical uh, risk assessments uh, for, for large programs, AOAs, capability-based assessments, like a lot of these things are, are driven by statute. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's, 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 I think if Congress did a zero-based approach to the statutes that they've imposed on the acquisition system and started over from scratch, they might be surprised at how much of this, you know, comes back to them. But definitely agree. I mean, he makes a lot of great points. Uh, I, I think the ones about, you know, a lot of rotation, I, I really do think that hurts a lot. I, I think it's a shame. We've There's been legislation on that. So now program managers do have to stay in their position. If they're in a key leadership position, they have to stay there for three, three or four years. It may have been four now. So they have to stay there for some period of time. By the way, but, Matt, there was a know. law in the 80s where program managers had to stay on for four years. The, um, the CRS did an investigation after that a few years to see what happened. Program manager tenure mm -hmm. decreased. <laughs> so, so this has been really? going on for a number of years. I believe even in the 50s, they were kind of like doing stuff like that. And for one reason or another, it just does not happen. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think part of it is that when you, to be a program manager of a major program, you're you're very close to the 06 level. Like you're a senior lieutenant colonel or mid 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 year lieutenant colonel, 
And so you have a lot of experience. You've gone through all the different wickets. And so at that point, though, the Air Force is starting to manage you as like a senior leader. And so I think it's just one of those things where like they want you to get depth and breath. And so you reach that point. They're like, well, we want you to go get this assignment and get that experience and then do that. And then if you want to make general, you got to go do this and that joint staff assignment. So it's like you have to bebop around so many times. And sometimes colonels, once you make colonel, you're only in like a job for a year or two. Like you don't stay there very long in many cases. And so, yeah, it's it's just, it depends by the service too. Each service is a little different, but yeah, it, it, that is a real problem. I, I think it does need to happen. I think part of it is that they treat, DoD treats the acquisition core like they're operational and they do deploy actually more often when Afghanistan was up and going, they deployed more often than you would think. And uh, so now that things have calmed down, maybe that, you know, that won't be as much of an issue, but you know, I think they do need to be treated differently. And it's like, yeah, you need some grooming, but you also need continuity. Um, but yeah, I thought this was great. Um, the other, uh, the thing about the labs, I think is, that's a little strange to me. I don't know if I totally understand that it, because I mean, I get the point about integration in the NDS that that point was made about, you know, the winner of the future wars will not be those that create new technology, but those that integrate it into a war fighting capability. So definitely understand that concept, but I'm not sure that most of the labs are set up for that. Maybe like the Navy labs are more attuned to that because they do more mature stuff than, than some of the other ones. But and then the, the Army RCCTO, you know, I think they're they're more in the integration business, too. So, yeah, I think it depends on what you mean by labs. But yeah, I don't I think, don't think of the Richto as, as a lab. Yeah, but if that if that's your lab, then maybe it makes sense. But if you're like Army Research Lab looking at, uh, you know, low level 6162 biological stuff. Yeah, this doesn't. Yeah, but the the army is kind of taking the lead there on um on like RCV and and other places as well. So I don't know. I mean, it's a good point. <laughs> I I used to kind of be of his opinion as well, you know. Um, but I feel like the more I've looked into what the labs are doing, the more it seems like they're not just like off in fairy tale land, um, doing you know just kind of like crazy invention stuff that might boomerang back. So I've kind of like changed my mind a little bit on that. Um, but it's hard to say. Yeah, they do a lot of stuff. I think it's underrated. I think it's sort of like um, the the defense labs are a little bit like um, NI or NIH, uh, uh, like the crown jewels. Um, <laughs> well, no, I mean, I was thinking of them, like they're more like the um, National Science Foundation. Like, there's so much money that gets filtered through the labs to universities. I, I mean, a lot of it is grants and collaborations with universities. Sometimes for military unique stuff, but a lot of times it's just progressing, you know, the state of science across the U.S. So, yeah, I think they're a little bit underrated just in terms of like how much benefit that you never see comes out of it. And I think the critique they always get is that not of not as much of the stuff that they bring to fruition, you know, gets transitioned into a program. And, and I think that's a fair critique. But I think there's a, an awful lot that happens underneath the surface that that we don't see and you know companies like google and everything benefit from that because they suck up that you know that intellectual property and use it in, in creative ways but yeah yeah they um i mean it feels like you can't really blame them to some degree it's like even if they wanted to transition something like it's kind of out of their hands to a degree so i wouldn't blame them for kind of you know going inward looking to a degree and maybe to some degree 
you know, it's surprising that they're not more inward looking and, you know, like self-protective and just kind of like empire building on whatever they want to build um, and not expect it to, you know, transition. So maybe they're doing actually um, pretty well, but I'm wondering, you know, like I don't have the full view on army futures command and, you know, how they've kind of taken over some of that warfighter capability development and, you know, actually making some of those decisions in terms of acquisition programs for RDT and E. But it seems like the army's actually done a pretty good job of, um, you know, starting with Esper and the zero based budget, you know, kind of getting rid of old stuff and like, you know, forcing money into new stuff and, and really kind of like having a little bit more dynamic, I guess, you know, program and budget structure, um, at least in RDT and E. And I wonder if some of that's due to just like, the, that zero-based budgeting that that Mark Esper was doing with the, you know, Night Court, and how much that has to do with um, the Army's future command kind of taking more responsibility for that, and then if anything can be attributed to the cross-functional teams. Yeah, I mean, I think the jury's still out a little bit on the futures command. I've heard different opinions about it, but. I definitely like the CFT approach. Uh, it just seems to make a lot of sense that you you have that focus, and you know they don't. The Army Future Business doesn't have a, doesn't have a ton of them. They're very focused like next gen vehicles and you know C two, and so so they're they're kind of targeted in the ones they go after. Uh, and I think they're kind of nice portfolios. So if you have the right involvement in that, and you have the right tools to make the investment decisions, you know I think it's a great construct. I don't have a sense of are all of those decisions being made the way that, you know, you'd want them to be made or the right stakeholders being consulted and all that kind of stuff. But, but it, it definitely seems like they're making progress on a lot of fronts, especially uh, autonomy front. I'm pretty, pretty impressive. Next one we got here is the, with the T7 on the way, why is ACC, that's of course Air Combat Command, eyeing a new trainer from Defense News. The Air Force released an RFI request for information for a new trainer uh, dubbed Air Advanced Tactical Trainer on October 12th that came out. And the RFI would be used potentially to also provide adversary air support, which is um, an interesting aspect there. And so ACC Commander um, Kelly added that the ACC needs additional features that were not put into the T7 requirements. And so he's basically saying the T7 was built um, the way we asked them to build it, or build it, that was fine. But it doesn't have features that could including additional sensors, increased fuel requirements for mission duration, afterburner use, um, and additional weapons, computing capability, simulation capabilities, and the like. So it's interesting, you know, T7 was like touted as this really great thing, digital engineering, low cost, like lots of lessons learned, um, an ability to be kind of modular and grow capabilities. So I'm not really sure why some of these things like sensors and computing um, can't be kind of tacked onto the T7, but maybe they're kind of using this potentially to go towards a program that will be unmanned to support, you know, adversary air um, as opposed to straight up like manned fighter. I'd be interested to see whether something like that happens. But Kelly said here, is they don't want a twenty thousand plus cost per flying hour. They want something closer to two to three thousand in cost per flying hour, um, with something closer to our modern avionics. And I'm just wondering, how do you get to two to three thousand cost per flying hour in a manned fighter jet? <laughs> right. 
Well, it's a pretty, I mean, it's a generally kind of a simple aircraft. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the only thing I could, I could, I could say on the ultra flying hour. <laughs> but I think, I think part of it might be, it might be if you look back like earlier this year, mid, mid this year, that there were, pro, there were, there was trouble in the program. I mean, they, they had delays. Um, I think some of the, you know, some of the executives, acquisition executives kind of noted that, yeah, it was a pretty aggressive schedule. Uh, they were expecting delays, uh, testing delays and design delays. And so I think, I think what happened behind the scenes, I don't think they're like telling the full story here, but I think what they're essentially saying is Boeing's basically identified that, you, you know, there's a bunch of problems going on. And I, so I, if I had to guess, I'd say they probably had some design review or some Tim and, you know, cause they had a wing rock issue at some point. Yeah. They probably identified a bunch of a bunch of new things, and the Air Force was like, "We got to hedge our bets here a little bit. Let's go see. You know, this isn't the only option out there. They had a pretty pretty intense competition. Let's go see. You know, let's go see what else is out there. So I, I like this approach. Let's keep Boeing honest, and, and you know, maybe they'll come back. Like I think the article kind of said, and maybe they'll come back and say, "Yeah, no, we can do this." And uh, you know, maybe it'll motivate them to kind of fix some of those issues faster and want to, you know, be a little bit hungry for this versus, you know, like we've talked about before versus viewing it as a capture, like, okay, I've captured this program. It's mine. Uh, nobody can get it from me and I can pretty much do what I want. And the air force has to, has to eat it. Uh, so this might be sort of like a, a general hold, like maybe <laughs> pushing like, Hey, let's see, let's see what else is out there. Let's keep the competition going, you know, like, uh, so, uh, we'll see. We don't know the full story, but could be something like uh, that. I think you're right. I mean, we did report, you know, a few months ago that they were talking about those delays and, and some of those testing issues that the T7 was having. And I mean, if that's true, and like if Boeing screws the pooch on the T7 in terms of just like um, his technical performance, then man, things are going bad, right? Like there's, I just was pointed to this new book that came out, Flying Blind, the 737 Max Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. And I think that's kind of rehashing some of um, adding new flavor, but also like kind of talking about that, that decline since they merged with McDonnell Douglas and those McDonnell Douglas financial people kind of like took over the company from Boeing, which had been an engineering, you know, culture for a very long time. And so, yeah, that would, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I think the adversary air support was potentially one that um, was kind of telling to me as well as to like what they were thinking and it would just be good you know sometimes like just because you announce an rfi in a potential program like it doesn't mean that you have to execute through and i think that's the problem with that program of record baseline thing right it's like once you announce something it's like oh well get your sustainment lined up do all of your affordability analyses and like pretend like everything's already set and you're gonna like execute on this multi-decade thing it's like why not just generate some options and then make that decision when it makes sense? You know, our, our acquisition process wants us to do like life cycle decision making, like before we even know what the hell we're doing or they're doing. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, given the digital engineering, uh, I mean, this, this, like you said, this aircraft is all, all about digital engineering and the ability to, to kind of design things faster. 
And you know, hey, if, if someone's not good at it, there's there are other vendors out there who know how to do this. And there's more and more, you've interviewed a few of them, <laughs> you know, more and more vendors who are getting good at this. And so we're gonna have a lot more option space. Some things we're not gonna have options, right? Like hypersonics, probably gonna have one or two vendors. But for some of these other things like unmanned aircraft and you know, low, low complexity, non-stealth aircraft, we're gonna have options and so you should take advantage of it. Yeah. All right, we got a leaked video here of UK from the UK showing an F-35 falling off an aircraft carrier. Uh, a leaked video reported widely by local media in the UK appears to show a British F-35 drop off the launch ramp of the HMS Queen Elizabeth, the country's flagship aircraft carrier, without ever managing to get airborne. A local media speculated that something like a plastic rain cover might have been sucked into the jet engine, causing it to fail. Did you, did you see the, the video there? It was a. Uh, it was pretty sad. <laughs> Actually, just kind of like flopped down, like nothing happened. But yeah, yeah, it was weird. I don't think it almost felt yeah, like it was I don't fake. think that I don't was. Know why? But... <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you. I I think something getting sucked in makes a lot of sense because it it shouldn't have. It may have failed. Like I could see an engine, you know, overheating or having some type of issue. But like they would know before it took off if it was that bad. So. Yeah, something seems wrong there. Well, the dude, That's you saw cool. the guy eject, right? Uh, like, yeah. So. Not what you want to do at that time. <laughs> <laughs> Nor do you want to be the guy that, like, ejected out of that thing, people potentially pointing their fingers at you, and now you got, like, a salvage operation on a $100 million fighter jet. <laughs> like, trying to, like, I just want to see pictures of them trying to, like, salvage that thing out of the water and bring it out, right? Oh yeah, and apparently it got it went down pretty deep. I didn't quite realize how deep the med got, but I can't remember the exact depth. But it was like it was like way way down there, and uh, yeah, so not a simple not a simple operation. But um, yeah, no, I'm glad they got they, they beat the Russians too. Yeah, I was thinking like been, yeah, but the Chinese got there first, right? <laughs> they already had their underwater shark autonomous submarine down there biting through and getting to the electronics. <laughs> It would be pretty funny if they bring it up and like some of the key, the key pieces of it are gone. It's like what happened to the uh, secret box? Yeah, like uh, China already has the, the for specs sure. for that thing anyway. So what would they need the physical copy o- for? Only the un- only the unclassified stuff. <laughs> is, is that true? When 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 they were making a big deal yeah, about yeah, that, yeah, they yeah. were it was it was just unclassified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, oh, well there you go. You're making me feel a little bit better about the whole thing. So so. It's, but just still a lot, but you yeah. Know, so, but I mean, it's basically like okay. So their FC thirty one looks a lot like an F thirty five, but like you know, who knows what's actually under the hood right there, right? Yeah, I think that's why a lot of people when they first saw that, saw the air, Chinese aircraft, they were like, yeah, you you can model the design, I mean, you can reverse engineer, it, but you know, there's a lot of complexity in that, and then yeah, the subsystem or the 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 the, in, the guts of the system and all of the sensors and you know software that was developed you know you, you can't you can't just model that well thank god for them so. like if you gave yeah. them like the six million lines of code and then they said it was like 10 or 20 million like off board but if you gave them that code they should just throw it away and start from scratch anyway right no it's really you know it's really really capable i mean yeah if you're starting from scratch you might probably maybe design it cleaner but that that is really capable. A lot of people don't give the F thirty five credit, but it's like the 
it's the first AI platform because it really is a data churning machine. It's it's pretty uh, pretty impressive. Well, there but. you go. Put in putting in a plug. Um, and I hope that's actually true too, right? <laughs> like it would be good to see. You know, I I, I really wouldn't mind like seeing the F thirty five kind of just like break in like a like an F twenty or an F eighteen or an F sixteen. You know, had problems early on, but then it just kind of and the F fifteen was like that too, right? So I think a lot of people. Mitchell Institute folks, you know, they make that argument like every every program has problems like this will this will be fine. Right. Like just got to get over. I mean, this one's kind of going on for a little bit longer and longer and longer. But, um, you know, I think I, I still think it can pull it out. It's just a question of is 1700, you know, the right requirement for the Air Force or does that take up too much money in terms of sustainment and other priorities? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you can take a lot of lessons from it, but I think some of the lessons you take from F-35 are, the, are, are ones that people don't talk about as much. Like I would talk a lot more about the sustainment, thinking about sustainment in advance, and, and that was not a priority for the program. But it was. So, like in the original yeah. conception, like if you're yeah. going to have like a, a joint aircraft, the whole concept was, you know, minimize production sustainment costs, right? It's just, I guess, like they well, just only because of Alice, on it. Know. It was always because it was always that the use of Alice and having, you know, what they call the PHM, which is like prognostic yeah, health uh, maintenance, you know, so they were always, that was always supposed to be part of it was you could, you know, call back and tell what part was failing. And so, but it wasn't a priority in terms of, I mean, that the program didn't focus on the issues on that until way late in the program. When, well, we thought it was going well, and then we found out it wasn't going well. But it was pretty late in the program when that was identified. But why and was so this, why that, was That's so what late, I mean by right. Like the F fifteen had because an automated it was, logistics uh, system that didn't work out very well. Well, it was all Lockheed controlled well. program. We didn't we didn't know the full level of deficiencies until we took control of it in two thousand twelve. But so two, the, ten years um, after SDD started, the Air Force just like had no like, and that was the contract structure, kind of a TISPR style. It's like. Just stay away from me. Well, it was it was a little bit before 2012, but yeah, it was like probably 10 years, roughly, before we started to find out how many deficiencies there actually were. But we did make silly decisions too, where we we substituted titanium for aluminum, which which caused uh, structural issues later because uh, we wanted to reduce the weight for fuel efficiency. And so there were some trade offs that happened, but yeah, just in general, I'd, I'd say you know any future aircraft that we develop, NGAD, for instance is going to have to think about sustainment. You can't you can't have that high of a flying hour cost if you want to buy the quantities. You can't have the complexity and maintenance where it's, you know, you need so many specialized parts and trusted components and all this stuff that like just drives a ton of cost and and you know, uh, and issues, uh, supply chain issues. So, yeah, just like more more simple like yes, do advance the capability in certain areas, but like y y we have to find ways of making NGAD a lot more, uh, you know, taking some of the lessons from F-35. So I hope they do that. We'll see. It'll be, what they say? I think I just read recently, somebody asked, oh yeah, it was in one of the uh, Air Force magazines. They they asked uh, uh, General Brown and he said, and Gad's still looking like 2030. So it could be almost 10 years before we see anything on NGAD. But, uh, that's yeah, that's depressing that. to me. And I wonder to what degree that's like a, development like straight up development issue and how much it's just like well at that point 
the the purchases of the F thirty five will be ramping down, and we'll have the budget, and like, it's not threatening at that point. So thirty, you're right. <laughs> even though you could have been like flying that thing in twenty five or maybe even twenty four. Yeah, I don't know. Because they got the prototype up, or they got some kind of demo demonstrator. So from the demonstrator to a like a straight up prototype, give it a couple years, and then prototype to an EMD model, give it like another three or four years. Like still, that's before twenty thirty. Yeah, like I mean, well, that's the other lesson I take from F thirty five is, for one, be, do modular, which NGAD is supposedly going to do, and then also don't try to don't try to do everything at once, right? Like, do start at a lower lower. Um, technical baseline, um, you know, focus on one capability, test that, test that really well. And then, you know, then add on to it. But like, yeah, we try to do these things where we add everything in at once and then we go through years and years of testing and, you know, it's 10 years all of a sudden, you know, before you get something filled in. So yeah, I, I'm yeah, that would be, you know, that's an interesting point too. Cause it, like, yeah, boil the frog, right? Like just introduce like the mi- minimum viable capability release, right. And then iterate from that. Exactly. And it's, but it's just like, Okay, so what does the F thirty five suck at, or you know, like where are they deficient? Let's do that. Awesome, like potentially range, right? You know, like payload capacity. Maybe you don't need some of the, like the fancy um, sensing capabilities on F thirty five because you could like plug into some of that network. Uh, but like, yeah, right. Like, where where am I kind of weak in my existing structure? And let's focus on that. Get get that capability out, and then we can kind of talk about the bells and whistles. Yeah, Dr. Roper used to talk about it as a modular platform. I, I hope it does have multiple, like kind of like I hate to use it as an example, and I'll never use this example again, but the Toro Combat Ship, you know, the uh, modular packages, you know, it, I, I really hope they, they adopt that approach where like, okay, maybe sometimes you need it to be an ISR platform, which just, you, you know, it's just taking in all this Intel data, fusing it and, you know, giving decision worthy information out to various platforms. You know, sometimes you need to be that. Sometimes you need to be a targeting platform. So, it, you know, it's got its radar, you know, going. You know, maybe you don't need it to be all of those things. You know, maybe you can maybe you can sort of specialize aircraft for for the different missions. So it'll, it'll be really interesting to see how that, how that plays out for NGAD. But that's what I hope. Yeah, for. I'm worried about NGAD because the idea was, you know, they're funding like a bunch of subsystem development type things like um, through NGAD. And then it turned out like, okay, well, here's this demonstrator. Okay, well, if you become a program of record, you collapse like what was that kind of modular development structure into like a single program of record, a baseline, go execute. And so we're still kind of in that fuzzy early stage, but I hope they don't collapse it um, into a program too fast. Or at least they just like, if they do, they continue having this NGAD um, program element or program that's really just like let's just like progress you know these types of sensors these types of weapons these types of airframes these types of propulsion systems whatever you know whatever they're doing there um, and just like keep keep progressing those independent of the platform and allow different platforms to kind of quickly you know adapt to that of course I guess that gets back to the digital century series idea but I guess don't don't collapse it too too fast into a program of record is is my fear Right. Yeah. Like, like you said, I mean, this is where I would like, we talk about portfolios. I'd love there to be a portfolio that's just focused on, you know, different sensors and, you know, like who can, who can develop the best electro, electro optical, you know, targeting system, 
uh, who can develop the best digital air, you know, air surveillance system. Like, you know, like you, you develop these sensors that can be used on, you know, maybe on an MQ-9, maybe on some of these, you know, ultra high, high endurance, you know, things or some of these uh, long shot drones or something, you know, yeah, it would be great to have that type of thing where you have multiple sensor vendors that can provide you different capabilities and they're adaptable enough to be able to use, be able to be used to multiple different platforms. Um, so that's the dream, right? Yeah. That's the dream. I guess some of my dream would be like, well, could you offload some of that to like a C4ISR PEO? And then NGAT is really just like integrating things quickly into airframes and propulsion systems and just like proving that stuff out, right? I wonder like how much the C4ISR types, those other program offices support because so much of that had been integrated into the JPO, right? So it's like, it's not, it's not their job to worry about, you know, fighter aircraft sensors Uh, that was integrated into the JPO. So can you disaggregate that back and have like a multi-organizational system for going after that? Yeah, actually, you know, there are, um, so for FAA, uh, there are different sensors that are used. They're like FAA certified sensors. They're called CNSATM. Uh, I forget what it all stands for, but basically there's different um, different things that go on the air platforms and there's literally a catalog of different things that you can choose and the Air Force has certified them and so anybody can choose them. So that's actually not a bad model, but you know, it's generally for lower tech stuff. If you get into like radars and you know these aircraft type sensors, yeah, they typically live with the, the developer of the of the aircraft is and that because so like maybe that's your your, your observ- low observability signature it like kind of depends on some of that attributes like where where is it placed on the aircraft where is it looking what's like what do you look like it's kind of like integrated like how how well could you modularize that like independent well i mean i think it's been done i think now is the time to modularize it now that we're using you know, different, uh, most of the standards, you know, UCI and FACE, everything becoming more commonly used. So, you know, if, if we actually use those at scale and, you know, even small vendors can, can get on board with that and that becomes, you know, common for some period of time uh, where the industry can reliably say, yeah, I'll develop this around this interface, then, then I think we're there. I think it's been done, it's been more federated before because like a platform was developed, every single thing about that platform was pretty much developed from scratch, right? Like it was like the radar, you know, we're going to put a new radar and we're going to develop a new radar. Um, you might be building on a previous baseline, but you're always like doing the next generation one. And so, yeah, so I think now we're at the first point where we can really try some of these modular things and say, actually, we can use different radars. Maybe we need a really, really advanced one, the the 82, like the F-35 uses, or maybe we can use a lower end one. Uh, maybe it doesn't even need to be AASA, you know, so for, for the target set. Um, for the mission. And so, yeah, I think, I think having that scalability and, you know, this goes to like Dan Pat's kind of thing about mosaic warfare is like the ability to have lower, lower complexity systems. Maybe sometimes we just need systems with a, a lower end radar. It doesn't need to detect something at 300 miles, just needs to detect something at 10, 15 miles and, and shoot something, you know? So I think that'll be the, that'll be the key is having like multiple different radars available, for, for the different things, and some are going to be exotic, some are going to be less exotic, having different like, EOTs, DAS sensors. Um, so, yeah, I hope we hope we get closer to that vision. All right, yeah, well, that's all we got time for uh, this week. Thanks for joining me, Matt, and we'll talk to you next time. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. 
Thanks again, and until next time.